This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, March 11, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, and I'm joined today once again by Real Vision's own Rao Pal. Rao, couldn't be happier to have you back on the show. We got the old band back together. It's great to have you here. It's always hit, good to hear your dulcet tones on a Friday and your smiling face. <laughs> well, I'm smiling because we're doing Real Vision Daily Briefing together. What better way to cap out the week? Rao, obviously a tremendous amount happening right now. A lot of news cycle activity, a lot in geopolitics, inflation, market volatility. Big picture, what's happening and how are you thinking about it? So let's start with the geopolitics. Um, I outlined it all on Monday. If people haven't watched it, you can go to the YouTube channel to find it or on, on Real Vision explaining the three outcomes. We're still awaiting. I said there was a two-week window, and we're in that window. Are, is there going to be some sort of dirty, horrible compromise that everyone's a bit stinky-nosed at, but it, it appeases the markets? Or is this going to get into something worse? We have to wait and see. So the markets have been thrashing around trying to digest news flow, which is always why I've, I've said be careful of trading geopolitics. But there are more structural things going on that are interesting. Obviously, Equities are still in a bear market, um, whether they're trying to find a low or there's something bigger, we don't know yet. My thought process is it's probably more likely to be getting closer to a low. But if we start playing out the full recession card, which the yield curve doesn't yet suggest, then, OK, that could be different. So I'm looking at that. I'm looking at the dollar. I'm looking at the bond market, looking at gold, uh, looking at crypto. So there's a lot of things to look at. Yeah, and much to talk about. By the way, I should say, Raul, the comments in YouTube right now are flying by so quick that I'm having a hard time scrolling on them. But we should say we are doing an extended Q&A after this ends, I believe, at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time on Twitter spaces. Uh, so don't miss that. We're going to cover some of your questions here, but much, much more to talk about. Raul, you talked about the bond market. I know you're thinking about this uh, as a reflection on valuation, a reflection on geopolitics. What are your thoughts right now on the bond market? So I have been following something called the chart of truth, which is the long-term trend in 10-year bond yields. And it has a couple of times got to two standard deviations overbought. I don't know if, if Brian's showing the chart now, but yeah. two standard deviations overbought. But generally, it gets this kind of zone between one and two standard deviations overbought, and it reverses. So, okay, we should be on alert for something changing in bond yields. Why? Everyone's screaming inflation, but I think of the inflation at 8% as a massive tightening of monetary conditions. because neither corporations nor people can offset it with increase in earnings or cost rises, it price rises. So what you've got is a tightening of monetary conditions, particularly on lower and middle income households, because the earnings gap is massive between wage growth and, and the inflation numbers. And that tends to slow growth. And we're seeing forward-looking indicators suggest that, that growth is slowing down quite fast. 
Um, and that will play out not immediately, but in the next six months. So I'm looking at this thinking, could everybody be kind of wrong at bonds? I mean, the last time it got to two standard deviations was when Jeff Gunlack was talking about um, yields going to 6%. They didn't. People are now talking about a structural shift in inflation. Is it possible? For sure. I still think the probability lies in the chart of truth. So then something else is going on in the bond market, which is the yield curve. Now, everyone's talked about this, but this is a really nice chart that shows the yield curve. Now, it goes up and down. It goes 300 basis points on the upside and maybe negative 50 on the downside. And usually when you get to negative, a few, maybe a year later, you get a recession. So what's weird this time around, it's kind of peaked really early, which plays into the argument that I'm having that, that monetary conditions are actually, you know, the, the inflation is actually essentially like rate, rising interest rates 200 basis points already. So once the Fed starts to rise on the next chart, you can see what happens. So, Brian, if you flip to the next chart, so these are the last two rate rises and the yield curve is in orange. The yield curve flattens as soon as they start rising. So we're currently today 25 basis points from a yield curve going to zero. So I can't see how you can get interest rates to rise more than 50 or 75 basis points before you've actually created a recession. So that makes you think that if that's the case, that the forward-looking indicators suggest that there's going to be a potential recession ahead, then normally demand destruction comes. Along with the rise in prices causes demand destruction, the answer to higher prices is higher prices, as an old commodity market saying. So therefore, bond yield should come off, and particularly at the long end, because the long end is essentially the inflation element of it. So if we go to the next chart, here's the chart of TLT, which is the 20-year essential equivalent ETF. This looks like it's a big wedge pattern. It's right at the bottom of the range, and wedges like this, these triangle patterns, tend to lead to breakouts one way or the other. I think the balance of probability with a slowing economy a risk-averse world, and inflation likely to peak over some point. I understand that the geopolitics has uh, clouded that issue somewhat. That this looks like it's an interesting risk-reward when everybody in the world hates bonds. So that's something I've been focused on. You know what's so interesting about that chart series that you walk through is you start with literally the 40-year chart, the chart of truth, looking back over 40 years. Really extraordinary to see that steady rate decline uh, and then coming into the 20-year chart and now here looking at a little bit uh, narrower here at TLT. That's how to build a macro framework. You have yeah. the secular trend, the secular, cyclical trend, and then where we are now where you start using technical analysis. That's a very, well, that's how I've always approached markets. Because I, I tend not to like to trade against the secular trend. So I'm, I'm almost never short bonds until we prove that the secular trend has changed. So when I see all of these things added together, I could, I could have overlaid DMARC indicators, uh, RSIs, where we're seeing divergences. Things are stacking up to, you know what, maybe the macro picture is going to change for bonds. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what you are able to do with macro. Really interesting also to contrast that with some of the things that you've been saying about the geopolitical situation, which I think is so interesting. One of my favorite quotes uh, was you saying, don't get too clever, don't get too cute, don't get too brave. This stuff is almost impossible to predict in the short term. That's right. But let's think about bonds here again. 
So let's assume that things get worse. We go to my scenario two or three. Okay, that's a more risk-averse world. So the most risk-averse asset in the world is the US bond market and the US dollar. We've seen the dollar scream higher because of this. So everybody's record underweight pretty much, the bond market. So therefore money comes into the bond market. And we've seen those kind of moves in stuff like 9-11 and others where you know, those kind of events move the uh, bond yields. Okay, let's assume the other side. Um, let's assume that there's a truce that gets called tomorrow. Well, we're going to see crude oil down significantly, et cetera, et cetera, as people start to think, well, the Europeans will cut a deal um, and they'll be able to get oil and gas and, and commodity prices will flow, in which case those things turn around and in which case the inflation pressures come off and bond yields fall. So I kind of feel like we're in a sweet spot. Unless I'm going to be wrong, we can see where I'm wrong on that chart, roughly speaking. Um, and that would be if there is a structural cyclical, a structural change in the entire bond market dynamics. Now, in 10 year bond yield terms, could it get to 225 and still be in the chart of truth? Yeah, fine. So, but it kind of feels like we should be looking for the change. Yeah, you're talking right now about 10-year Treasury yield, uh, which is trading at uh, almost exactly 2% right now, I believe, as we have this conversation. Yeah, and you, you can see, Brian, if you flip up the chart again of the chart of truth, you can see that, you know, we're, we're in the zone. It could chop around um, or it could make a burst for that, for the, for the green line, which is the two standard deviation kind of overbought versus the regression channel. So that's, that's I think, interesting to me. Yeah, we just lost the two handles since we started. One spot, 995 right now on UST 10-year Treasury yield. There you go. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So, Raul, we talked a little bit about the macro picture. We've talked a little bit about the geopolitical picture, uh, obviously, which is very uh, unstable, uh, to say the least, right now. How do we, you know, one of the things that you've been speaking about very eloquently on Real Vision uh, in Raul's adventures in crypto uh, are your conversations about the crypto space. How do you fit it in and how do you reconcile all of these positions and where do you see crypto going right now? So, in answer to right now, I don't know. The chart looks like it wants to go lower again and and have another spike low. And that's been my, my, my view for a while. However, the crypto markets have not made a new low versus last year. And I think we've thrown 8% inflation, the market pricing in at 1.8 rate hikes, and, um, and a war, and you haven't made a new low. It's like, okay, that's telling us something. Now, maybe that can change. But I mark that down as interesting. I've got a lot of technical divergences. A lot of the on-chain activity is very interesting. So I'm still thinking that we've probably captured the downside in this 50% down bracket that we've been in with Bitcoin and ETH. Um, so that's where I think we are, but I'd like to zoom out. So just like yeah. we did before, where are we before? So Brian, if you pick up the first chart, so I've talked about this before and just updated it for Global Macro Investor, my research service, which is crypto users versus the internet. What we did here, well, Remy did it for me, was we started at 5 million users each. When they both hit 5 million, we then start measuring them. And what we found is that 
crypto has been significantly outperforming um, the internet in terms of adoption. We're way ahead of internet adoption. So if we just continue at a kind of slightly slower pace, we get to 5 billion users by the end of the, by the, end of the decade. So that's basically total adoption of crypto. And by the so, way, it makes sense that we'd see that rapid increase in uh, the rate of adoption because it's being monetized uh, by the users. You know, uh, Facebook is a great platform, but it's been monetized by Mark Zuckerberg, the early founders and investors. What makes crypto different is the capacity for people who are using the network to profit from some of the economic upturn. That's, I think, maybe the most significant. Of course, so like the Internet, we didn't profit. We couldn't buy tokens or shares of the Internet. We had to find the companies that were going to win. The Internet won, clearly. But here we can own the network, right? This is how powerful it is, which is, and it's, there's something called that. So that, so Metcalfe's law is the network effects, but there's the other thing called Reed's law. And Reed's law is when you build network effects upon network effects and you get true exponentiality. So if we're thinking here, we're building the, we're building the foundation layer was the internet. Then mobile data, 3G and all of that starts accelerating it. And then and broadband and all of those things, and then you add the internet of value on top. Of course, it's more exponential by its very nature, and the fact that you can own part of the network makes it more attractive for everybody to be involved. So, if we look at the next chart, I've got another chart of this, just zooming in a bit. So, Brian, if we flip to the next one, so this is here's a couple of assumptions. So, what you can see is in the first six years. The internet grew at 70, 76% a year or 78%. Um, crypto has been growing at 117%. So it's much faster growth. So we're at 300 million users now. At the same point, the internet was only at 119 million. So you can see the scale of how this happens. So if we assume that suddenly everything slows down in crypto adoption and we grow at the same speed the internet did over the next four years, so this is now from year six to year 10, we get to 500 million users. Oh, sorry, so 1.2 billion users. If we just assume the ratio lower, then we still get to you know ridiculous numbers of 2 billion um, by, by 2026. So it's incredible. And when you're growing at 100% a year, it's 4 billion the year after. Yeah. And then, so the next chart is another interesting one about adoption. And this is the one I'm pretty proud of. So this is, I started, you know, I've been bleating on about Metcalfe's law, network effects, how to value these things. And it's very hard to do because Metcalfe's law is quite a complicated formula and you don't know what data to use. So I thought, I wonder if I can approximate it. And Remy and I went through all of the data for writing Global Macro Investor. And what we built was a network value model. And we tried a number of different things and found out you can explain every crypto network by two simple things. The volume traded on a daily basis, monthly basis, and the number of active wallets over that period. Once you, mark, once you map that out, it's one multiplied by the other, the charts exactly fit that of Bitcoin. So we thought, okay, this is interesting. So basically the network is the amount of activity on the network, not in number of transactions, but in, in value that gets exchanged every day and the number of people exchanging value. So if you think of a network, if you've got one participant who's doing a billion dollars, it's not very valuable. But if you've got a billion dollars being done by 20 people, you've now got a network. 
so it kind of makes sense. So I wanted to then test it against Ethereum. So if we look at the next chart, it works perfectly for Ethereum as well. I don't know, we've lost Brian now. Brian? I think, I think the there charts are just lagged. There we go. There we I go. So that's Ethereum. So really interesting. And it also works for XRP, which is weird. You wouldn't imagine it would, but XRP works exactly the same. So then I tried it for Polkadot, and it works exactly the same. So what it shows you is everything in a network is basically the volume of transactions in dollar terms or value terms and the number of people using it. And that's it. And that, I think, is a big breakthrough for the space. I don't want to pat myself on the back. Now, doesn't mean I can yet forecast it using this, but I can show where what drives the value of a network. And I'm working on other models now to start having forward-looking indicators to understand, okay, what's really going on? I mean, those correlations are just extraordinary. We look at a lot of charts, and I don't see charts that look like that very frequently. So basically, it's it's very clearly correlating uh, the price uh, just to the number of users and the dollar volume of the transactions. I mean, it's your like MV equals PQ. Yeah, yeah, it's, ama it's amazing. Um, let's see, ETH model is slightly deviating from fair value, and I think that is because there is a difference in ETH versus all the other networks that I've shown you so far. And that is because, so if you look at the ETH price in blue, it's higher than the, than the network. And I think that is to do with burning of tokens. So if I were to model this better, in ones where there is a token burning model, you should see a slight outperformance versus this model, because obviously you're reducing supply all the time. I'm sure we'll see that in Gen 2 of the model. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's complicated. My maths isn't that good. <laughs> uh, Raul, listen, I I'm curious. You've been talking on Real Vision uh, in Raul's uh, Adventures in Crypto, as I mentioned, to a lot of great guests. I've I found a, a number of the recent ones incredibly interesting. Uh, Bill Tai, uh, especially uh, the gentleman who runs uh, ARK Invest Crypto Group, uh, Yasin Almahando. Uh, tell us a little bit about that journey, what you're learning there. Well, Yasin was a super interesting one. So Yasin obviously works for ARK, and he's very native to this space, and he has different views to me. You know, he's much more of a Bitcoin guy, and I'm much more of an ETH guy, or I'm much more of a multi-chain world. Uh, but, but what was really nice about the conversation was being able to have an open, proper discussion to realize we're talking about different things. <laughs> One is hard money and the sacrosanct Bitcoin blockchain. And the other is, okay, the internet of value. And can those things coexist? Are they competitors? And how should we think about this? How should we think about the philosophy? Because what happens is if you talk cross-purposes, people clash. And so Yasin and I had a really great conversation about this. And I think we both moved our understanding on of the whole space overall just by riffing off each other. So I love that. And Bill Tai, you know, Bill's amazing. Always love speaking to Bill. Um, just getting an idea of where things are going, how the NFT uh, world is moving, how philanthropy, good karma, how that works, and what he's up to and what he's seeing. So, you know, I always like picking these people's brains because, look, why I love Rouse Adventures Crypto, it's my learning journey. I take people on that journey with me because I want to learn from them. And because nobody has all the answers. We all know bits of this puzzle, but this puzzle is moving at lightning speed, as I just showed you. 
And so we can't know everything. So what an incredibly rewarding opportunity I have to be able to just choose who I want to talk to and say, listen, how are you thinking about this? Where do you think this is going? What observations do you have? I mean, and for other people to just peer over my shoulder and get involved and listen in, it's amazing. By the way, Raoul, talking about people peering over your shoulder, I don't know if you know this, but we've got about 2,000 people watching this stream right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so you've, got, the, you've got the coconut girls in the background, by the way. Well, they're always hugely popular. Exactly. Um, but the questions are, are flying in fast and thick. Any other points you want to touch on before we switch to get some of these questions? No, the other one more thing is, um, look, there's, there's big picture things. I've, I, covered, I covered gold um, in the update that I did, which is right now you don't know who owns what assets. I, you don't own anything because the government's taken away from you, which is we've kind of known, but it's been writ large in the last few weeks. And I think, you know, even though gold is coming off because it had a you know, good squeeze higher, I think we're going to see more action there. The one to watch, I think, is the dollar. The dollar is really important and the dollar is very strong. I do expect the central banks to try and slow it down at some point. But the dollar going up basically creates credit issues for the global economy. We've got we've already seen places like Nigeria running short of dollars. We're seeing it in Sri Lanka. We're seeing it in the periphery. It always happens in the periphery first and then comes back. So there is liquidity issues further out in the system. So just keep an eye on the dollar. The more the dollar goes up, the more liquidity issues you're likely to face. And the world struggles a bit. So just keep your eye on that. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, before we hit the questions, one more thing that I wanted to hit, which is important, is a conversation that you had with Russell Clark. This is going to be out next Friday on Real Vision. So you're actually getting a sneak peek of something that's ahead uh, of its appearance on the platform uh, called The Shell Revolution is Here. Let's take a look at that clip. When you're managing money, it's a little bit hard because if you commit to one view on something and then you raise money on the back of that view, uh, the the threshold for you changing your opinion suddenly goes through the roof because you, you're going to go back to people and say, oh, actually, shale is a real deal. Whereas when you're still more sort of independent and free, you can look at it and go, actually, the data now is coming in very differently to how I expected. Uh, and that's exactly what's happened recently. It's like, I, I must say, I thought when they started to go through this huge inventory of old wells in this, uh, this drilled uh, uncompleted wells in the States, I thought they were going to find that these wells were empty. They had no oil or gas. They were just drilled to raise money. And so you'd see productivity collapse. And the opposite's actually happened. Productivity's sort of gone up a lot. Um, and that's been like a, also sort of mind-opening for me because it explains a lot of these sort of weird things like I look at U.S. budget deficit, you can look at the Fed, I look at you know, a lot of things and think, God, the dollar should just get absolutely crushed. And all it does is stay very strong and very strong against, you know, currencies like Russian ruble, Turkish lira, of course. But it's, you know, you've, I think perhaps we're in the, you know, the Shea revolution 
I suspect maybe I've underestimated. Such an interesting clip. I particularly enjoyed the bit about how when you raise money, the friction associated with changing your opinion uh, goes through the roof. But to the substance of the point, Ral, a really interesting point, uh, basically this notion of what's happening with the dollar. The dollar keeps rising. Give us your context on that and how it ties in uh, with what we just heard. So this is going to tie back to Bill Tai as well. So Bill Tai talked about petrodollars and electrodollars and that crypto is the electrodollar based around electricity while the petrodollar was based around supply and demand for oil. So we've been in a petrodollar system since we floated um, off the gold standard. Now, what does that mean? It meant that the US was one of the biggest importers of crude oil in the world, if not the biggest importer. So they would spend dollars, and these dollars floated around the global system, keeping it liquid. But the shale oil revolution, as Russell points out, did the opposite. It meant that the US didn't need to import as much. Yes, it has to import some different grades of crude and stuff like that, but generally speaking, it's self-sufficient in oil. So that is a lot less dollars into the global system. So if there's a lot less dollars in the global system, the dollar goes up. It's like ETH burning. It's like Bitcoin supply. There's less dollars sloshing around the global system because the US aren't spending it. It drives the dollar higher. And that's one of the things that's kept the dollar strong for a period of time. Yeah. So what do you say, Raul? Should we jump in and do some questions? Let's do it. Okay, first one comes to us from Nathan E. And this comes from the exchange. That's Real Vision's internal social media network. And the question is, would love Raul's thoughts on precious metals and commodities in the near and medium term? I understand the thesis. People like uh, Tracy Shuchart talks about, Tony Greer, that there's a big commodity supply issue and a reasonable amount of demand. I think the demand side of the equation will be weaker going forwards. I get the structural issues. I don't like owning commodities in spiky markets like this where you get news flow and it falls 20% overnight. I think that's hard. Commodity producers, maybe you've, you've got a better opportunity, but they've been very spiky. So if you're not in the trade, it's not a trade I can enter now. Um, the pressure and are we in a commodity super cycle? The answer is I don't know. It's possible. We're due one at some point. I just don't know where the, where the demand side of the equation is, except for ESG demand. So I can see the copper side, the nickel side. There's a whole bunch of these things that are very important um, in that. Um, and so, you know, with reduced supply and normal demand in crude, I can understand the prices might remain high. Yeah. Precious metals, um, as we talked about, in a world where money's getting confiscated, in a world of inflation, of a world of geopolitical risks, um, it's, it's got to be good. I mean, gold made a new high, backed off it. It probably consolidates for a while. And then if I look at the long-term chart of gold, um, particularly the inflation-adjusted charts of giant cup and handle formation, and my guess is gold goes to 2,500 plus. Yeah, really interesting. You know, I I was actually thinking about this earlier. It's like the Tony Greer trade and the Kathy Wood trade. I think they may both be right, just on different time horizons. That's always the case. That's why I can't. I find it ridiculous that people insult each other for, you know, I'm a commodity person, that's a tech person, those guys are idiots. It all works in the right way at the right time. You know, I've been waiting to buy these blown up tech stocks ever since I talked about the exponential age thesis. I've not bought any of them yet because they were two standard deviations overbought versus the log trend. And I've been waiting to get to one or two standard deviations oversold. And lo and behold, that's where we are now. So I'm kind of looking at them very actively and looking for a change in the macro to buy them. 
Yeah. By the way, talking of Tony Greer and Tracy Shukart, we did a terrific uh, Real Vision Twitter spaces yesterday with those two. I had a couple thousand people join us. Yeah. I mean, they're both amazing. I love them both. Yeah. And, and really, and really smart. You know, really smart. Tracy's you know, incredibly good at all of this stuff. Uh, really sees it. She filters out the noise. Uh, and Tony's just a great trader. He's crushed this trade. Been talking about commodities before. It was well else. ahead the game and yeah. nailed it. Absolutely. Our next question comes to us from Ross Dahman, also from the exchange. By the way, uh, Ross asked his questions in seven parts. So I think we're only going to be able to hit part one, but that probably tees us up nicely for 7.30 p.m. Eastern time today to do the overflow for these questions on uh, Twitter spaces. You can follow that by following. What time, are you? What time are you? You're, you're 4.40. You're the same time as me. Same time as you. So we're at 6.30 Eastern time. Yeah. You An just hour and 50 minutes. You just said 7.30. Oh, did I say 7.30? 6.30 p.m. Eastern time. Yeah. Enough yeah, time to check. like... I thought the clocks haven't changed yet. Not yet, but I think it's this, this weekend, right? And we may be on different time between Cam and New York. Yeah. We don't change time. Yeah, just enough time to grab a burger and a beer. Yeah. Ross Dahman, first question. How will the continuing supply chain snarls impact crude, other commodities, and inflation? Um, the answer is I don't know. I'm not the expert. I've not been focused on the commodity trade. Um, again, you know, Tony, Tracy, others like that have been all of the, over that. So I, I would stick to their advice as opposed to mine. Yeah. Here's an interesting question that comes from Angela W. Uh, Rao, we're strong believers in crypto as mac and macro and the exponential age, uh, yet men we respect like Mike Green and Russell Napier firmly believe uh, that ultimately governments will not permit competition to the sovereign fiat. How do you reconcile those two conflicting viewpoints? Boy, just what we were talking about. I don't think it's all about money. It's the internet of value. That's why Web3 has become the narrative. So Bitcoin is a different beast and it's more of a reserve asset. Does it turn into a full, fully fledged medium of exchange and currency? Yeah, but that's not happening for 20 years. It's possible. I doubt it because governments want to own their supply of money. They want their own tokens for their, for their own community, like everybody else is going to have tokens for their community. But, you know, I think as a reserve asset, Bitcoin works. But what we're actually talking about is the new, is the way of storing transferring and recording ownership and value in the digital age. Governments are not going to get in the way of that. And Gary Gensler made it, uh, not Gary Gensler, sorry, the president made it pretty clear that it's all fine. They just want to make sure it's regulated a bit. Yeah. By the way, really big news for coming out of that executive order in terms of just the framework. I was joking that, I mean, the ultimate impact of that is that we have a bunch of government working groups writing reports, but it's the signal that it sends uh, about some of the things, some of the language, we, the wording we heard in that, uh, talking about the future of money, talking about U.S. remaining competitive by being involved in these digital assets. Really interesting language. Yeah. And I also thought they, they remember I've had a few rants about the fact that the SEC was trying to stop people participating in this. It felt inclusive language. And I thought that was really important that they kind of acknowledged that, that this is an opportunity for the broader public and they can't not allow it. By the way, one of the coconut girls sat up and took notice when you said that. <laughs> exactly. She wants to participate too. <laughs> uh, here's a question to us that also comes to us from the exchange. Uh, and it comes to us from jerkytreats.eth, obviously somebody who's very into ETH. Uh, and the question is, uh, Raul, bonds are good in a recession environment, but how do they perform in an inflationary environment? I think we all know the surface answer to that question is pretty poorly, but curious to hear your next level thought. So 
if anybody had ever told you 10 years ago that inflation was going to be at 8% and bond yields were going to be sub 2, <laughs> they'd have laughed in your face. Yeah. So it tells you there's something people don't fully understand about this. Yeah. And it's about the forward inflation expectations driven by demographics and the debt super cycle. So my view is higher inflation is disinflationary forward looking. And the bond market is telling you something similar. Yeah. By the way, you could say the same thing if you would have said 8% inflation and gold is under $2,000 right now announced as we have this conversation. That's right. Again, you know, we think we know, and that these are all narratives, right? Everything we have is a narrative. Um, and so, yeah, memes rule the world and, and gold as an inflation asset was a meme that's ruled since the 1970s because it worked. But maybe that wasn't the only reason gold worked. Maybe there are different reasons. So yeah. people need to be open. And I think part of it is the denominator idea. So, you know, once you took gold off the gold, um, dollar off the gold standard, you're changing the denominator as opposed to just about the inflation numbers. So there's a lot to pass out. And nobody knows the answer. I don't know the full answers, but I know demographics probably explain the majority of it. Yeah. Here's one that comes to us from the Real Vision website from Peter Lim. Rao, what are your thoughts on EU carbon credits? Yeah, I mean, they got smashed. And I'm still long. Uh, I love them. I think it's an amazing trade. So how I pass through this is, okay, the Europeans know they have a problem having dependency on foreign oil and gas. They're going to have to cobble together something, whether they do a backdoor deal with Russia or try and get more in from Algeria or figure out how to get it from Turkey, anything to keep it going. But given this shock, the one thing they have to do is get off oil and gas. So I do not think they're going to waver in their application of the EU ETS uh, carbon system. I think they need utilities, power producers, manufacturers, shipping, and all of the things that come under this to start um, allocating um, their efforts on greener energy, which is driving an investment cycle as well. And I know I, I see people all the time laughing at it. It's like, you know what, the world without having to use oil and using abundant sources is a better world. Now, that doesn't happen overnight. And that right. creates these supply issues because you've, you're pushing forward the narrative of ESG or trying to reduce the narrative of, fuel, of, of fossil fuels, but you, you've got a mismatch. And you're going to see these kind of squeezy prices until that happens. But yeah. over time, we will see a lot of technological advancements. People say, well, it's impossible. It's impossible right now to generate that much power. And obviously, nuclear is the other one that's going to come into this. Um, and I don't think that's going to... Uh, I think that will be um, allowable under ESG because they have to do. And that's between nuclear and green energy, you scale massively. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes a while to build a nuclear power station. Yeah, and to your point, I, I think economists call these intertemporal trade-offs. You have these weird time horizon uh, things where you can make mistakes with policy uh, by trying to withdraw too quickly, for example, from fossil fuels when there's not the technology to do it. But that doesn't mean in the long term that this is not the direction that everything and everyone is heading. That's right. And the digitization of everything is the trend of the world and moving away from burning fossil fuels to digitizing the sun's energy is where we're going. Um, and and I don't think anybody should have a problem. It's not a philosophy, for God's sake. It's just the efficiency over time. Now, 
when we first started it, it was much less efficient. The government's had to subsidize it over time. It's become cheaper, even without subsidies. So it gets more efficient over time, and that should continue to happen, where the cost of electricity ends up falling and falling and falling. And that's, there's no philosophy to do with that. It's just a straightforward technology advantage. Absolutely. Well, here's our first question that comes to us from YouTube, and it comes to us from Saif Al-Saraf. It's a question I don't know the answer to, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Chinese stocks and bonds are going haywire this week. Anything specific that we should be taking a look at uh, in those markets, Raul? Yes. Firstly, the Chinese credit cycle is, is at its lows and is now finally starting to come up. So essentially, the Chinese never report recession, but essentially the Chinese economy has been in recession. It actually leads the US economy by a year. So we should expect a similar outcome. So there's that. Then foreigners do not want to own Chinese assets because of what's just happened to Russia. So the extrapolation is dot, 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 China, dot, 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 Taiwan. Oh, shit. Let me sell all my stuff because I don't want to get sanctioned and it being down 90% or frozen. So that's what's going on. Um, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we've blown through about 40 minutes here. It feels like in record time, as always. Uh, we've got our 2,500 closest friends who are watching us right now, and I'm glad that they can join us at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time as we continue this conversation on Twitter spaces. But, Raul, as we come to the conclusion of this conversation, final thoughts. We've obviously covered a tremendous amount of ground. How do you sum it up? What are the key takeaways that people need to know? The key takeaways is this is a really complicated situation. The geopolitics are terrifying, saddening, complex. The markets themselves are caught between that, inflation, a tightening Fed, slowing growth. It's a very complicated world. This is not the time for widows and orphans. This is not the time to make big bets because this is the time you will get carried out. So be very careful in what you do. You know, manage your risk very carefully. You know, so for example, I did the bond trade I used options on TLT um, out to September because I've got a defined risk reward then. I can't lose too much. It's You need to think in these terms in markets like this. Well, the only problem with doing these shows with you on a Friday night is that this is literally the high point of my whole weekend, and it's done by 4.30. <laughs> Well, we can have a glass of wine later when we do the spaces. Absolutely. Ralph, thank you so much again for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you with us. Always great to be here. It's been fun to be back. The gang was back in town. Indeed. Thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Again, join us at Twitter Spaces at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time today. Uh, and since you're a Real Vision viewer, we just want you to know we're hiring. So if you'd like to come and work with Raul and me at Real Vision, uh, please go and check us out on the website. Maggie Lake will be back on Monday with Daniel Lacal and Joseph, uh, excuse me, Josh Lipsky. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend, everyone. See you, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.